Hello and welcome to Common Air, an exhibition companion for Het is auf Disdainensbrecken, Silence is a Commons, at Costco Art Institute, aired on Stranded FM. The day is September 26, 2019, and it's 2 o'clock. We're broadcasting live from Stranded FM in Utrecht. The weather is 16 degrees Celsius, and it's drizzling. My name is Stacy Boucher, and I'm a curator at Costco Art Institute working for the Commons. I'm so excited for this second season of Common Air with Stranded FM. There will be more interviews, collaborations, music, and especially we are going to embrace the silences. Okay, let's get right into it. If together we talk and separately we understand, what might we understand together if we listen to the stone speak? How do we unlearn to speak for the commons and to listen to them instead? And how can we protect language commons that are of neither power nor capital? Now you might be wondering, what in the world are these stones and how do they speak? Imagine if these walls could talk, or simply the ways in which art can communicate beyond words. And listening to and protecting the commons instead? Hmm? Well, some of our most precious, fragile resources cannot speak in ways humans understand. Let's find ways to pay attention to these silences. These are just some of our questions that we ask at the outset of our exhibition planning. The Autumn 2019 exhibition program at Costco Art Institute presents Het is Auf Distainensbrecken, Silence is a Commons, featuring four solo shows of the Distinguished Artistic Practices and Languages by Babi Badaloff, Ansuya Blom, Amma Josephine Budge, and Mire Lee. Each artist presents forms of communication that transgress the norms and habits shaped by power and capital-driven media. Ultimately, they show us what language can and can't do. Misunderstanding, incommunicability, and distressing language are some of the most frequently encountered obstacles in collaborative and sharing practices, even among affinity and coalition groups. These cracks and rough stones are the study of our autumn exhibition program. The four artists offer insight into expressive ways to communicate when on the verge of failing to do so. The works take up the possibilities and limitations of language as a departure point or a reconciliation in performative and also in material ways. The result is an affective resource of new vocabularies, syntax, and stories that break the tensions around ideas of simple understanding. These artists provide answers to these big questions. Babi Badalov gives a jumble of words fetched and twisted across mother tongues, drawn on secondhand t-shirts, papers, or walls. Immigration becomes eugration becomes hegration. We can follow the words that crawl away from correctness to celebrate and harness mistakes as the source of new images, words, and meanings, while creating the heterogeneous cultural landscapes in which artists live and travel through. 
Ansuya Blom invites us to sense a dream world or a dark corner of the mind through her delicately rendered paintings, drawings, collages, sculpture, and films. Revealed vital organs in a series of paintings refer to the consequences of putting words to what you cannot describe yet, what's happening irresistibly on your insides. The partially concealed interior scenes of psychiatry clinics on collages draw a hazy line between confusion and clarity. In her speculative fiction, Alma Josephine Budge pictures landscapes whereby enhanced human hybrid and often queer protagonists have adapted to the melting, polluted planet. War-torn and dry, catastrophic sceneries are depicted in which inhabitants, like the flora and fauna, not only remain resi resilient, but are pronounced with a static feeling in their every movement and detail. Words decree that the only future possible is one of queer black joy and multi-species justice. We see objects reluctantly moving in Mireille Lee's sculptural work. They look like human bodies or mobs, abandoned and struggling to move and express their abject existence in spite of themselves. They counter the world of words, inviting them to face their hy hypocrisy. Plastic tubes adhere to a small motor slap like the habitual eloquence of speech slowly moving and getting stuck in the glistening wetness of glycerin. Now about the title, Het is off the stain and spreken, silence is a commons. In the Netherlands, one cannot turn a corner without encountering Dutch spreekwoorden, proverbs, pithy expressions stating wisdom to be true by the majority. The exhibition title, part of it, Het is off the stain and spreken, is borrowed from a less common expression that refers to unexpected information that surfaces as if by miracle. Silence is a commons, the title of an inspiring address uh, on contemporary communication given by the philosopher Ivan Illich in 1982, is included in the exhibition title not in direct translation of Hetisov to Stain and Spreken, but to complement it. Illich was engaged in a lifelong struggle to find a new vocabulary, a new language and logic that could express the commons, how they work and why they are important. Nearly 40 years ago, Illich talked about how, like other commons, the commons of language has increasingly become enclosed and made vulnerable by machine-based communication. Fast forward to now, and our current moment shows how information is manipulated for political gain Take, for example, hate speech, fake news, algorithms, translated yet dulled by the dominance of English, and standardized but stumbling or indifferent to culturally situated knowledges, notwithstanding the non-human languages that other species may speak. Silence is a commons, in parentheses, is to offer a context in which we try to communicate with this exhibition. So in our first episode of season two of Common Air, um, we're going to start with a, a visual description tour of the exhibition. Um, this is written by me, and it's read by Eric, Rosa, Yuli, and myself. Um, we use this as a, a tool, an, an accessibility tool, for our friends that are blind or visually impaired, and also, in general, people that will never be able to see the exhibition. So here we begin. Costco Art Institute, working for the commons 
is located at Langenieuwstraat 7 in the museum quarter of Utrecht. Upon entering the Abraham Dorloff, a semi-public courtyard that is shared by residential and non-profit neighbours that closes around 6 p.m. each day, you are greeted by lush greenery, bricks and stones. In the courtyard is a large tree that is a little over 160 years old. Many visitors on walking tours come to visit this tree, which survived the great winter of 1945, in which people gathered wood from wherever they could get it for warmth. The courtyard is filled with small pebble stones and the walkways are mostly made of late red brick. The courtyard has a lot of greenery, mini trees, flowers and shrubs. Approaching Casco Art Institute, you will find five steps made of concrete that lead to the double door entrance. Casco is housed in a building that was once a school for children with learning disabilities, and way before that a convent home to St. Ursula's 11,000 virgins, or troubled women. This convent sets a scene of a story that is part of the exhibition, which will be explained later. Before entering the building, there are three plaques on the right. One that says Photodoc with their office hours and address. One that says SVK 030, Creative Housing. And lastly, one for Casco Art Institute working for the Commons, that reads in Dutch, 14 September tot 3 November 2019, Halfjaarlijks tentoonstellingsprogramma Het is of de stenen spreken. Between breaks, silence is a commons. Met vier solo tentoonstellingen door Babi Badalov, Ansuja Blom, Ama Josephine Batch en Mirali. Once inside the building, the office of Photodoc on the right and the office of Casco Art Institute is to the left. There is a sign in front of you that reads Quote, Welcome to Costco Art Institute. Are you here for the exhibition? Please come into the office on your left to pick up an exhibition guide. End quote. That's where you are welcomed by a host who briefly introduces the exhibition to you and gives you an exhibition guide and invitation. You are pointed to the bottom of the staircase, which is directly in front of the building entrance. The brown wooden staircase ascends in a U-shape. The wall at the midway point is very high and features the title, artist names and exhibition dates in large brown and black vinyl. The first floor of our building is a series of four large square spaces that we use as our exhibition space. Between rooms one and two and rooms three and four is separated by a staircase and corridors. Rooms two and three are simply connected by an open door frame and share one long wall. One staircase is our entrance and the other staircase connects the artist studios at the other end of the building and is not used very often. Now, once at the top of the stairs, directly in front, there is a window with an angled shelf below it, 
two scrolls of text side by side with a black button and the play and stop symbols next to it. There are two large stool height tree stumps in front of the shelf used for seating facing the window. As part of the interior architecture, two white columns flank this area on each side of the shelf, window and tree stumps, and a pair of headphones hang on each column. This is part one of three of a story by Ama Josephine Butch titled The Water Moves Within Me. The story is recorded in three parts and read by the author and is split across three listening and reading stations, always next to a window. The listening and reading time of part one is eight minutes. Final on the window reads in English, quote, I taste her blood on the barely there breeze, salt, palm wine, pepe. It awakens moist memories, derisive and defiant, devious and cruel. So she comes surfacing, bubbling, never lacking for waters now, breathing life into those she bled, broke, sucked and fucked out of her victims, oppressors, victims. I have missed her laughter and the sweet sobs of her disparate climax. I call her back to me, this new woman, sent so faint, so yearning, end quote. The columns are wrapped in brown cotton rope using the bondage method of shibari, and as if this architectural element are the, quote, wrists of the building. There is the smell of cedar oil in this area as if excreting from the building. Since this is in between rooms one and two, to the right you see the bondage rope continue onto the wall and into the corridor with vinyl text at about head height of a standing person leading to room two. To the left you see another corridor and on the wall it reads in Dutch and English, room one, Babi Badelov. There is a corridor that leads to room one and already begins a mural by the artist, almost like a sneak peek before entering the immersive installation. As you pass through the open door frame, above is a drawing that reads communist and below it's communism. There is a facial profile drawn below the lines of the M and the N of the word communism. The walls of room one are completely covered from floor to ceiling. In the poetry drawings by Babi Adalov, painted in black and gray wall paint, the same gray as the color of the floor, words, languages, symbols, ornaments bleed into one another, break down their phonetic sounds and visually play together. Badalov has a unique style of writing, often cursive-like, and lines of letters become opportunities for ornamentation or for a shape of a face or tree. There are various colored fabrics that also include poetic slogans on them, like the yellow cotton banner that says, you know, spelled Y-O-U, and you now, as in the letter U. Here are some examples of the visual poetry, one after the other. Ecosystem, ecosystem, egosystem, ecologia, ecologia, as well as silence dream, science dream, silence common, science common. Utrecht School in Common. Gemeenschap, Meentes, de Meent. Organization Study, Organic Care, Oriental Clear, Occidental Vision. In the center of the room, there is a long table, about five meters, covered completely with a selection of A3 sized collages Badelov made in 2014 when he first immigrated to Paris. These collages are more intimate glimpses of Badalov's artistic hand, featuring pen, pencil, and found papers from the street. The writing and drawings are more anecdotal and confessional. Leaving room one and heading back towards Botch part one of the story, the rope that lines the wall not only visually connects each listening station, but it's a timeline that is like a factual sub-story to the speculative fiction piece written by Botch. 
Starting from 1400, the timeline explores the Dutch and Portuguese climate colonial relationship to Ghana, as well as Muslim presence in Ghana, as the protagonist in the story is Black and Arabic. The timeline information is featured in English, Dutch, and Arabic. And side note, please send an email to stacy at casco.art if you would like to receive a document of these timeline items. That is S-T-A-C-I Stacy. This rope continues down the corridor wall and then wraps around the open door frame to enter into room 2, where the timeline continues down the wall and passes at the next listening station, part 2 of Bodge's story. But the rope continues to wrap around the column near the window and up onto the ceiling, cutting across the room before disappearing behind a wall. Part 2 of the story is approximately 18 minutes reading and listening and is accompanied by two palettes that each have a soft top of cushion and blankets. Two smaller tree stumps, two sets of scrolls with the second segment of the story in print and vinyl text on the window. The text here says in English, quote, Did you know that even after the Dutch overcame the Portuguese in battle for the Gold Coast and situated themselves at Elmina Castle, the land enclosed within the fortress refused to grow crops to feed its men? The land has always been resisting with us. End quote. Room 2 is split in the center with a diagonal wall to divide the space between Bodge's listening station near the window and the work of Ansuja Blom. Coming out from behind this wall, you enter a sort of triangle of framed works by Blom. On the diagonal wall, there are two works on the left from the early 1990s, but an ongoing series called Des Deezer Mensch. They are black with subtle marks and etchings. On the right, there is a diptych collage featuring the same inject, inject print but two different treatments to it. This is part of the series titled Portrait of Susan U. The print looks cosmic. It's a negative of a molecular view of cellular matter. On each print in a drawing of an interior scene of a living space, especially the rooms of a psychiatric clinic, a bed, a chair, a heater, a light hand from the ceiling. On the right, the image is more clear, and on the left, a wash of white acrylic paint obscures the image, making the scene more difficult to make out. Two other similar works from the series are on the adjacent wall, making a total of three. The wall that is shared between room 2 and 3 features a work by Blom that is comprised of 36 A4 sized drawings. The drawings are hung in a line above the shoulder height all the way down the wall, connecting the two rooms together with a single work. It's titled Fragments L&W and features delicate line drawings, abstract images and sometimes figurative on top of poetry and letters by Ellen West and clinical reports by Dr. Ludwig Bingewinch and transparent papers. Both Ellen West and Susan Urban were patients of existential psychologist Dr. Bingewinch. Room 3 includes five other works by Ansuya Blum and includes another diagonal wall but positioned opposite to the one in room 2. Behind this wall is a film screening room. 
The wall's height is almost to the ceiling, where it meets the structural wall but slowly slants at a downward angle towards the entrance of the screening room, in order to minimize the amount of light that bleeds into the dark screening space. Now at the entrance of the room coming from room 2 on the left, there is a framed drawing titled Everybody is a Star, which depicts a series of beds drawn with graphite and colorful vital organs, like hearts, kidneys and livers, each nestled into one of the beds. Next to this work is a sculpture hung on the wall called You and Me. In relation to the title of the exhibition, the English translation is, it's as if the stones speak. This is the only work made with stone in the entire show. Within the office, we had a laugh about what this stone might be saying. One soapstone is the size of an outstretched adult hand. The other one is smaller, more like a fist. Each one has a small window that features a photograph as if the two stones are eyes. When Blom speaks about this work, she asks, who is the me and who is the you, as the two different sizes of stone next to each other speak to shifting power dynamics. The six-minute film is called Isabel's Table Dance. It was originally filmed in 16mm and a digital conversion, still holding the grain of 1987, is screened on a loop in the exhibition. The film is in color and has sound and features a female voice speaking in poetic prose, while a white woman cuts cherries, packs organs into small satchels, and wraps them around herself like accessories and dances in the kitchen. There is a sound of a rattle instrument. The camera scans the table and highlights details of cherry juice, candles and other small objects. At one point, referring to the song by Harry De Belafonte, the voice proclaims, the unrepairable hole in the bucket could be a hole in the heart. There are two seats in the screening area. The window in this area is blocked out to make the space dark and the wall is lined with felt in an attempt to keep the sound in. Please send an email to stacy at costco.art if you'd like to receive a full transcription of the film. On the other side of this wall, there is a large collage titled Absolute Anonyme 2 and features an abundance of vital organs cut out of paper and layered onto the work. A small empty space reveals, reveals the front of what looks like a house. It seems as though the organs are slowly encroaching on this exterior of the building. Two ant legs or antennas stretch across the work in an orange color paint. To the right of this collage is the work called Momo Pens. There are six larger than human scale sized pencils made of white plaster and graphite. They lean against each other in a bundle in the 145 degree angle made between where the new and structural walls meet. Leaving this room, the brown cotton rope from Budge's installation reappears from behind the wall, emphasizing the pause that it took for room three, which only includes Blom's work. Down the corridor towards room four, the ro rope continues as a timeline, including timestamps up to 1957, when Ghana gained independence and named itself Ghana. The rope culminates for the second elaborate shibari bondage at the two columns next to the window to listen and read part three of Budge's story. If the columns of the first listening station denoted the wrists of the building, the columns at the final listening station are the ankles. The bondage here features different knots and ties than the first one, yet all other aspects of this listening station are distinctly similar to the first one. Part three is approximately seven minutes reading and listening time. The vinyl printed in black on the window reads in English, quote, almost two centuries we have been together 
And though I feel Zura's vibrations whispering back to me from across that great drink they have named the Atlantic, I find I miss her already." End quote. To the right, the corridor continues, and vinyl text reads in Dutch and English, Room 4, Mireille. The corridor lights are on, and you can see that the lights are off in Room 4. The only light in the space is from the skylight, only a little open. Entering the room, you are initially greeted by a four-meter-long curtain that extends from the ceiling that is made of tissue paper and glycerin. The sound of buzzing motors fills the room. Walking the length of the curtain, there is an opening that leads to a shallow pool on the floor the length of the room, about six meters, and a, and a meter wide. This pool is filled with pink glycerin and gives off a sweet, synthetic smell. In the pool are two kinetic sculptures by Lee. On the left, a large limb-like sculpture, soft and rounded at, at its edges like a healed amputation, slowly pumps glycerin from where it rests and oozes back out. The sculpture on the right looks as if it's a tiny squid. It has long tentacles of wire, tubes, and springs, and is powered by a motor to gently rotate the tentacles over each other. There's one drawing that can be seen when leaving this room and is likely missed when entering it. It's a drawing that Lee made inspired by a scene in a hentai graphic novel. It is a scene from anal se sex after ejaculation, and in the text, and in text in the center of the leaking anus, it reads in Korean but translated into English, quote, I want to be together, end quote. So that is the uh, visual description tour. And as always, uh, you can write to me and I can send you um, the show notes so you can read it as well. And so you can write to me at uh, stacy at costco.art. <laughs> okay, so we have this, uh, what's really exciting about the second season of Common Air is that we have um, more of a direct collaboration with Stranded FM. So Luke Cohen was assisting with like getting us set up, and now for each of these episodes in uh, season two, we get to have a conversation with one of the members of the Stranded FM community and uh, get to elaborate about... Uh, different aspects of the, the exhibition, like silence, um, what it means to speak, what it means to listen. And so it's really exciting that we have Max Casey with us. Hello. <laughs> and um, Max, uh, you have a, um, a show on Stranded FM. It's, it's called Sloppy 40 Seconds. Can you describe what it is? Well, actually, I keep, I keep asking, um, I keep asking Levy to change this, actually. The show is called Breakfast is Ruined. Oh, okay. And uh, it's like a morning show every two weeks that kind of generally mm. almost always features a guest, I think. I think I need to stop doing that because I'm going to run out of guests <laughs> to feature, but like... There's always more. Yeah, yeah. And we just kind of... It's for the most part a music show. It's kind of mm -hmm. going for this like... Chill because it's Sunday, but also a bit slightly weird, slightly alienating, yeah. like right. kind of, you know, not just like two hours of comfort, I guess, kind yeah. of thing. 
Yeah, so breakfast is not completely comfortable. Yeah. I um, so uh, you have a background in comparative literature, and this mm. is what you're studying right now Yeah. at the university here. Um, uh, could you describe like what led you to comparative literature, like what your relationship is to it? Because, um, of course, an exhibition about language, it's... Um, it's really crucial that we've also thought through literature and, and different ways that language is studied and used. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, I think the way, I think the thing that's kind of really fascinating about literature studies is that it kind of, I mean, in a sense, you can kind of read anything through the lens, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. this is the, the forever example whenever I'm kind of talking about this, but my friend, uh, Vincent, he did his like master's thesis on reading zoos as literature. Wow. And it's like, you can kind of like reduce, not reduce, that's not the right word, but kind of see anything as kind of a text and kind of use these like yeah, kind of yeah. tools of analysis to mm. analyze. And that's why I think, like, as far as the humanity is concerned, I find like literature so interesting because, like, as just as a framework, because it's all about the object and kind of like mm. finding ways to deal with. It. An object, like I find stuff like, for example, I know a lot of people who do, for example, like gender studies, and that's right. like I think a really interesting feel. But it, it doesn't start with the object; it starts with kind of like a framework for understanding objects, yeah. like seeing how, like, well, to a certain extent, there is an object of gender, but it's all yeah. about like how discourse is sexualized, how the object is gendered kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting and valuable, and I would use mm -hmm. that analysis quite a lot. Yeah. But I think it, I just find it much more interesting when you start with the object itself and kind of... Yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> don't want to sound like I'm insulting gender <laughs> studies, but yeah. like let it kind of speak yeah. by itself. I mean, obviously, that's never perfect. You're always going to bring your ideology or kind of perspective yeah, to it. Absolutely. But I think it's kind of like a nice ambition, if nothing else, Yeah. I think. Um, and is there something in particular that you're pursuing in in the study, in your studies right now? Uh, right now, I've been kind of um, well. Right now, I'm kind of kind of developing a thesis topic mm -hmm. a bit. I'm talking about literature surrounding like kind of HIV epidemic and how that deals kind of issues of like temporality. Uh, I've also been kind of brushing up on my philosophy recently and kind of like trying to bring that into the analysis quite a bit yeah. like I just had the like fucking worst two weeks of my life I think because um, I read like the f like not all of it but like a good bit of like the phenomenology of spirit by Hegel oh, which is really like difficult. the m <laughs> most awful awful text to ever it's yeah. really interesting but it's like completely mm. terrible to read I think like mm. Like so, like abstract. So, like anyway, yes. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I understand what you mean. Of, uh, I think that's the difficulty in academia is uh, working through these really difficult texts mm. and working through ideas and concepts that, in many ways, like art, you're attempting to find some sort of solution to describe or transmit transform you know so I, I can understand what you mean mm. it takes a lot of training to read these kind of texts that's a yeah that's what I found as someone that has never been incredibly well read in graduate school I had to like okay 
Yeah. I need to read. Um, so, but and that's like we talked about before. That's maybe why I'm reading more so like memoirs and novels now, because yeah, um, yeah it's a question of the the joy of the text too, of the experience of reading that can also be quite magical. But of course, yeah, so when you're studying, what, yeah. it shouldn't be so joyful all the time, I guess. But um, uh, so you've seen the exhibitions. Yeah. I I wanted to talk with you a little bit about um, what inspired you in thinking about language and also different concepts of uh, maybe failure yeah. to communicate, but also of silences. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of, in a way, spoke to like kind of what I've been actually debating and getting into arguments with some of my fellow students <laughs> recently. It's like, because um, generally there's kind of an old school view of like kind of these two views of art, if uh -huh. you know what I mean. Like there's the idea that like there's the artwork and your thought of the artwork and you have this like perfect thought in your head and you try to like mm. make the artwork reflect that. And obviously it's never perfect, but it kind of has this idea of like a platonic ideal. Mm. Like this is the artwork that I'm trying mm. to reach. And obviously it never kind of happens. And then there's another view where you kind of you kind of start with the material mm -hmm. and kind of you let the artwork like you material kind of dictate the artwork you kind of let accidents happen you kind of you don't go in with an idea i mean the, the easiest example is something like fucking jackson pollock or something or like Ugh. maria abramovich or something like that mm -hmm. but i think and the other one is kind of like refuted now but i think it's kind of like interesting how for example, like someone like I don't know Walter Benjamin or something like he talks like like the Jewish philosophy kind of idea of like you have the object, the idea you're trying to reach, and you can't reach it, but you kind of like tap it from the side and kind of go at it every angle and kind of yeah, try yeah. to do it. But like, and like he kind of does that in a way like when he talks about like the concept of history, and he has these like twenty fucking theses. They're all like yeah. a paragraph long, and it's like art criticism and stories and quotes mm. and history and philosophy and all this, all trying to kind of get to the central idea. And I think that the exhibition kind of deals with it in the sense that mm. like it talks what I what I feel like is the truth, which is this kind of like middle ground where it's not that there is an ideal artwork, but like. Mm the invention of the artwork kind of creates this potentiality mm. or this kind of virtuality that's like, that is like the perfect artwork for want of a better term. And obviously right. no one can quite picture it, but it's kind of, it's that kind of potential structuring that I think is kind of really interesting. And that in a sense, I mean, in a sense it leaves like the artwork always a bit of a, a failure, I guess. Mm, mm -hmm. Like it always, like, but it engenders its own failure there was like you know the example like like there was no you know there was no silence before there was noise mm -hmm. and then there was no and then once that happened like you know noise is never going to live up to what what you think of noise and silence is never that perfect silence but can never be before it was like engendered by this kind of dialectical framework right. i suppose what you could call it and i think mm -hmm. the and I think the exhibition really like kind of goes into this in a way, like the uh, Babby Babby Badaloff. Babby Badaloff, like yeah, her yeah, one yeah. where it's like you kind of you write the word and then you write it again, but you change one of the letters and then you kind of like right. it kind of spins off into a drawing. It's just kind of like trying to kind of reach something past the language, and it's kind of the same I think with the one who I can't 
also remember the name of now, but like with the the pa pieces of paper with the writing and then like kind of have yeah. drawn kind of on, on top of it. Blum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of drawing on top of it. Like, again, this kind of like trying to kind of reach past it to reach some kind of better stage or something like that. Right. I and I think like, with the, the two of them, they really deal with, um, uh, in many of their works, especially Bobby Badalov, with the visuality of the text. Yeah. So he says that he's um, a visual poet. So it's not about writing letters, it's about drawing them. Mm. And the way in which Ansuya also uses literature, like the actual visuality of text on a page, yeah. the paragraphs and things like that. I mean, it's, it's uh, interesting to use it as both like material in her sense and Bobby's like as practice. Yeah. This kind of visuality of it. Yeah. But I think with both of them, um, well, across all four of, of the artists, but I have certainly learned a lot about this failure mm. and the kind of opportunity or what's made new by this like struggle to communicate, to be understood. Yeah, and I think it's also about kind of this idea of like kind of relation, feeling like like people have this ideal of being like kind of at one with the artwork. And I think this idea of like commons is all mm -hmm. still about this idea of like commensurability, yeah. kind of what's the feckin' word like? Um, yeah, of just like being together, being a kind of a one, but it's always mm -hmm. kind of impossible. And it's kind of this tension, mm -hmm. it's kind of like alienation that I think a lot of the artwork, I think does a good job of kind of engaging, yeah, kind of engendering. It's like mm -hmm. this, it's this relation that it tries to build that it fails, but it still does something in that failure, mm -hmm. if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean. I think yeah. also too with um, these, trying to draw these like tensions mm -hmm. around the commons and our usage of that word and also the limitations of that word. Mm -hmm. Like as like the, the team or those like, working with Costco, some of the first things that you have to do is say like, okay, what are the commons? And try to answer it yeah. um, before you're able to say a lot of other things. And I think this exhibition has been a really interesting learning experience because of that. Mm. Um, because there are many words and many images that actually mean the commons. Mm. Uh, so we're just trying to also expand this vocabulary, this lexicon, because if we're only using this word, uh, I mean, it's um, sometimes you get a, a bit trapped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the same way of when you, uh, if you're incredibly fixated on capitalism and communism, yeah, it becomes yeah. so abstracted. So. Other things like even just saying something like sharing or mm. kind of thinking about commensurability, these other words for the commons. Yeah, it becomes very, I think, in a sense, totalizing and kind mm. of like you kind of, yeah, it's very, like, I guess, for that, like kind of capitalism, communism, one, it creates this kind of like dialectic that just leaves out all the otherness that doesn't precisely fall into yeah. this kind of overly simplistic kind of framework. And I think that. That's what I think yeah, kind of like the art needs to kind of play with in a sense is yeah. like this kind of like what's left out kind of especially I mean in a world that's so like kind of ideologically kind of framed mm -hmm. and kind of set like 
how do you think outside of this, I guess? Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is something that Luke was just talking about, the way in which the building was incorporated into the mm. exhibition design. Something else I've been thinking about, too, is just, like, well, just grammar and sentence yeah. construction and commas and periods. Like, really thinking about how these signal um, a pause or a silence. You know, okay. I mean, if you were to emit all words um, in a paragraph of, of sentences mm. and you're only left with the, the punctuation, I mean, it is oh. a series of sort of uh, pausing and, and quietness. Yeah. I mean, maybe a bit abstract, but it's from all the poetry that's, that's no, going that's on. That's fun. But I like but this I, idea. Yeah. No, but uh, in the exhibition, I think that was... Um, a thought that you know the the team had. I mean, it was a struggle to do four solo shows in yeah. our architecture, and that's why each artist's work kind of bleeds out into a corridor. Yeah. But then spaces between them become very significant, like mm. commas and and periods. Ah, but I it's, like this. It's yeah, a, this so is fun. if uh, if silence is not mm. uh, absence. Yeah. Um, and if we can think about it really as a as a resource, mm. it's like how are we also paying attention to those moments in between the artworks? Or you ah, know? I like this. You should, yeah. I should be interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's it's uh, yeah. it's interesting to have a conversation with you about these things mm. um, and to to draw it out because I think that you're you're incredibly well read and you. I don't know. <laughs> have a lot of these concepts too that yeah I mean it's a I think that this is the struggle of language mm. uh, and also uh, in academic settings and when you're trying to communicate and um, make things really understandable for for people that they don't need to have read a lot yeah, I mean this yeah. is what I meant about the struggle of articulating the commons as well you know yeah I mean, I think like I don't. Know, I, I must admit, one of the kind of pieces that's my favorite that kind of articulates this kind of like alienating factor, and I think it, it works well because it comes right at the end. Is the I'm not going to use the word "ease" early, but the weird, merely is weird, amputated, sputtering, uh, yeah, liquid yeah, yeah. thing. It's kind of like I don't know. So kind of like I hate. Okay, the deconstructor is such a bloody cliche these days so I do not want to use that term but this kind of like it's just kind of this like breakdown of R into these just like loud sputtering kind of like mechanisms or something like that like yeah, absolutely I think it's like I don't know I, I just keep thinking of like language when I see it. like what is like what is this stupid thing on, on the ground yeah that's like leaking everywhere and it's like and there's like the writing on the wall with right. like the anus and all that and the gigantic. Actually, it's really great that you said stupid because Mire said Me that. Meant as a compliment, you know. Oh, yeah. But yeah. she says um, when she's making these kinetic sculptures, she's really like, I just, they start to really embrace um, the, the stupidity of things. Yeah, yeah. Their, their repetition and they're just sort of floundering about or sort of leaking and and just yeah these, uh, yeah I think it's it's funny the other ones are seeing like oh no we need are trying desperately to communicate or this is just kind of like yeah. 
this, this isn't trying to communicate. It's just kind of floundering on the ground, kind of. No, exactly. And I yeah. and um, what's really inspiring for us about Mire's work and thinking about communication is that there are always going to be these things that you really can't des describe. Yeah. Especially when you're looking at one of Mire's stupid sculptures that are just slowly oozing or, or mm. slowly spinning. It's like okay, you know, desire works this way, and that attraction and repulsion, while you're looking at these things, you just feel so creepy, in a way. Yeah. yeah. But maybe, so maybe this is a nice segue, actually, because, okay, one, when can you listen to Sloppy 40 Seconds? Sundays, fortnightly, okay. 11 to 1, okay. Dutch time. Okay, great. Is, just wanted to plug that yeah. in. And this next Sunday, it's on. Okay, great. And so you also said that you had something to play that is in relation to some of this conversation. Yeah, like I, I most of my generally don't connect um, my music stuff to my mm. silly philosophical musings. Um, mostly, it's, a, it's it's a bit of a nice break, I think. But I kind of I don't know when you talk about like silence, it kind of makes me think of ambient, I guess, because I think ambient wouldn't exist if silence was like what we wanted it to be. Mm. That's kind of like my theory of the case, like the fact that silence fails to please us means that we need ambient. We need like something that's as close to silence as possible right. that has no real music, but just like fills space, right. like fills like some ideal of what we want silence to be. So I uh, have one tune. I think it's this channel. Should I just play it? Let's go.
All right, so thank you so much, Max, for the conversation. And I think that we can probably continue that conversation later. So we're going to do something um, new, actually, in this season, where um, we're taking questions from uh, Instagram followers. So uh, thank you to everyone that sent in a question. I'm going to do it more so in a kind of lightning round of answering. Um, and then I uh, have two little surprises at the end here. So Meryl and Lota asked the question, how did you come to the title? Uh, to this exhibition and what does it mean? Well, I described already uh, what it means, uh, the translation. It's as if the stones speak, and silence as a commons is in reference to the speech, an essay by Ivan Illich in the 1980s. But the way that we came about the title internally as a team was actually thinking about, well, the dominance of English titles for things in contemporary art. So we were thinking, well, what would be better than actually situating ourselves, our, our local, and, and looking into actually the ways in which language uh, can operate. And a, a proverb is also a really interesting way for that to happen. Um, all right, Joan asks, how does Bobby's Badalov, Bobby Badalov's personal history impact his work and the words he uses? Uh, well, I wish Bobby was here actually answering that instead of me, and as well as like, I wish, uh, of course, the rest of the team could be here too. But um, Bobby's personal history um, is a migratory one. So he um, has this whole journey of traveling uh, and living in different places. And um, he knows many languages as well. So the way in which he travels and this migratory experience is often about crossing borders you know of uh, between countries uh, also like breaking down borders of words and letters so that's what i would answer to that um alan asks what has the team at costco unlearned about their internal communication with the shows hmm well i would say for myself um What's really interesting about our different mediation materials is that um, we are really describing the work in this way of observation. I mean, we're playing with observation and interpretation very much from our kind of perspective. So we really describe the works, and rather than saying, okay, this is about this, it's more like this is what the work is doing, just as we see it. Uh, we also interviewed the artists and gathered really amazing questions of which we use their voice in the exhibition guide. Um, uh, another thing, well, just thinking about like the, the layers of information to access. Um, when a visitor comes to see exhibitions, um, like I was talking about with Max, uh, you don't have to have read so many things in order to be able to understand it you should also be able to experience um, mediation in terms of a, a kind of an onion, like a layers, layers of, of information to access. Um, let's see, there's also, um, oh, okay, Henriette asked two questions. 
What was the most memorable part about making this exhibition, and also how did Bobby come to this mural display? Okay, so the first one, and I'm gonna speed up a little bit more, but the first one, um, I think that everyone from uh, working on this, from the office team at Costco to also our extended team have different memorable moments of working on this. But I would say for me, um, the experience of doing five studio visits with Ansuya Blum uh, and always with like another member of the Costco team was incredibly enriching. Uh, she's really a legend and brilliant and it was just, it was incredible to have this curatorial experience of looking at decades of work again and again and again and it was always a little bit different. Um, so um, that that's my most memorable one. Um, and about Bobby's uh, installation at Costco, well, uh, we provided him with a list of keywords that we wanted him to work with. And so over the course of 10 days, he uh, took those words and made drawings of them, changed them, uh, added new words. So it was really a very conversational, collaborative piece. And I think that's, that's about it. So, um, well, with only a few minutes left to spare, and also I wanted to play a few tunes, um, I just want to thank Max and Luke so much from Stranded FM. Um, this is really exciting to do, and also I look forward to the next two episodes where we get to collaborate more. Also to Robin Rutenberg for the sound design of Common Air, and Zuzana Kostelanska for the visual identity. And thanks to the Costco team and the artists, our volunteers, and the rest of the extended team for making these exhibitions happen. So uh, also check out the website. The Colifon is there, so don't miss anybody. Also thanks to you for listening to this episode. Um, you can hear actually the first season, those three episodes, if you visit mixcloud.com forward slash stranded FM. And of course, if you like the show notes, you can always email me. So. Um, also check out on our website. Uh, there's a really full and inspiring program through November. Uh, so you can see the full list of events and activities there. And now, um, two songs to close on. These are actually songs that relate to the work of Ansu Blum. Uh, as referenced in the film, Isabel's Table Dance from 1987, I'd like to play A Hole in the Bucket by Harry Belafonte and Odetta Holmes. Um, this was performed live in 1960 in, in a Carnegie Hall. And then there's also a work by Ansuya that's titled Everybody is a Star. So of course I'm going to play Sly and the Family Stone. And thank you all very, very much for listening and uh, catch you on the next episode, October 10th. Same time and place, 2 p.m. strand.fm. I now have the pleasure to sing with Mr. Belafonte. Henry? Oh, Henry? Yes, Liza. 
you fetch the water? Go fetch the water. There's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. There's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, a hole. Well, fix it, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. Oh, fix it, dear Henry, dear Henry, fix it. With what shall I fix it, dear Liza, dear Liza? With what shall I fix it, dear Liza? With what? With a straw, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. With a straw, dear Henry, dear Henry, with a straw. But the straw is too long, dear Liza, dear Liza. The straw is too long, dear Liza, too long. Cut it, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. Well, cut it, dear Henry, dear Henry, cut it. With what shall I cut it, dear Liza, dear Liza? With what shall I cut it, dear Liza? With what? With an axe, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. With an axe, dear Henry, dear Henry, with an axe. The axe is too dull, dear Liza, dear Liza. The axe is too dull, dear Liza, too dull. Sharpen it, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. Well, sharpen it, dear Henry, dear Henry. Hone it. <laughs> On what shall I sharpen it, dear Liza, dear Liza? On what shall I hone it, dear Liza? On what? On a stone, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. On a stone, dear Henry, dear Henry. On a stone. But the stone is too dry, dear Liza, dear Liza. The stone is too dry, dear Liza, too dry. Well, wet it, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. Well, wet it, dear Henry. Dear Henry, wet it. <laughs> With what shall I wet it, dear Liza, dear Liza? With what shall I wet it, dear Liza? With what?
See you next time. <laughs>